Well, good afternoon, everybody, and uh, welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name's Jamie Jauncey, and ever since I read the first page of the first book of the Wind on Fire trilogy, I've wanted to meet and have the chance to talk to William Nicholson about his extraordinary books and his wonderful writing. And the chance has finally come. Here we are. Um, he started a new trilogy, The Noble Warriors. Here it is. And this is the first book, and it's called Seeker. When Seeker arrived in, in my mail, I felt tremendously excited. I couldn't read it straight away because I have a lot of books to read for the festival, so I put it into my pile of books that I had to read. And I found that as it got closer and closer to the top of the pile, I became more and more excited. And it was really rather like the feeling that I remember from when I was younger of um, knowing that my birthday was just around the corner. And I finally got to read it two weeks ago, and I have to say that it was absolutely everything that I had hoped that it would be and more. There are one or two writers, and really only a very few, who I think can transport you completely. And Bill, because this is what his friends call him, um, Bill is one of these people. He can take you into another world that is utterly real and with people in it who are warm and human and full of faults and also utterly real. And at the same time, he can whirl you off on a, on a journey, an adventure that absolutely nails you to your seat. I think that's an extraordinary skill. So, Bill, tell us, this first book is the first book in a trilogy called The Noble Warriors. Who are The Noble Warriors? Okay, The Noble Warriors are a, um, a, a group of warrior monks. Um, I, I expect a lot of you, you know that in history there really were warrior monks. There were, there were people who um, were trained as supreme fighters, but were also dedicated to, to God to, and uh, uh, swore oaths of obedience to their rulers and poverty and uh, they didn't have sex, they didn't marry. Um, so they were monks, but they were also warriors. And I've always been fascinated by these people. I've been fascinated by the idea that you could be so dedicated to your religion, to your, to your God, that you would want not only to serve your God with, with your life, but to become a supreme fighter. And what I like about that is that you can go around whacking people. And the, the Knights Templars, who were uh, such people, were terrific whackers. They were really, really good at it. And in the, uh, the Crusades, you, you would have a group of like 40 of these people, and they were so supremely good that they could win a battle all by themselves against vast numbers. And they were good because they were completely dedicated and committed because of their faith. They didn't mind dying. They would just do anything. And I, I've always found that very exciting. And uh, I remember when I was watching the original Star Wars films and the Jedi came along, I thought, great, they've got some warrior monks uh, in this, the, 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 these films. But I found the Jedi very disappointing. And I found them disappointing. Well, I liked the Jedi a lot, but I found it disappointing because I didn't know enough about what they believed and about how their powers worked. Um, and then eventually in the later Star Wars films, uh, if you remember, there are several quite big battles where lots of Jedi turn up and they're all, you know, some have got long red hair and some are little round people and some are tall people. And there they all are with their lightsabers. And I was really disillusioned. I thought, is that it? They're just waving swords like anybody else. So I thought, I am going to write about 
some really, really cool warrior monks. I'm going to write about the ultimate warrior monks who you're going to want to join. And when you've joined them, and this is for men and women, for boys and girls. So that was how it began. But there is, there's actually a personal reason also why you might have been directed towards monks, isn't there? Yes, well, as, as Jamie knows um, very well, I was educated by monks. And um, I was raised by Benedictine monks in, in um, south of England. And these people were not people at the time who I was particularly struck by. I didn't think they were much good at fighting or anything like that. They tended to just to eat, as far as I could see. <laughs> but I think these things have a great influence. And if you think about it, if you're raised as a child by a community of men who wear black dressing gowns and don't have wives and are committed to poverty, it has an effect on you. Because all of these people who are your teachers and in some respect your role models have committed themselves to this deeply peculiar way of life. And they've done it because they believe in God and they believe that that's what God wants of them. And so I grew up believing in God very, very powerfully. I can remember in my teen years wanting to give my life to God. I remember this very strongly. As I grew older, that sort of dropped away. I, I don't really believe it anymore. But I remember that feeling. And, and I thought I want to write about that as well. And of course, that is the feeling that all three of the main characters two, come two. Two, sorry. Well, yes. yes, yes, two come to have during the course of the book, isn't yes. it? Um, but these, these um, war noble warriors, and they're called the Nomana, aren't they're they? They're called the Nomana, yes. The, 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 well, you know, when you dream up a thing like this, you have to think of names. And names are terribly important. And I puzzle a lot about names. So my group of, of, uh, of warrior monks are called the Nomana, which is a plural. And a single one is called a Noma, N-O-M-A. Uh, and N-O-M-A-N-A -A is the, 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 the group, the Nomana. And the noble warriors is like a kind of nickname they have because they are warriors and they are noble. And they live in a, a, a fortress monastery, rather the way that the Knights Templars in the Middle East did. These places like Castle Crack, if you've ever seen pictures of them, vast, vast castles in the middle of the desert in, uh, I don't know what the country is there in now. Is it Jordan, somewhere like Syri that, Syria? Syria. Um, my, my lot live on a, in a fortress, a huge fortress monastery. And this fortress monastery has got a village around its, the, the, the monastic walls, the, the fortress walls. But within, only the Nirmana go there. And as you go deeper and deeper into the center of this fortress monastery, you come first to an area called the Shadow Court, which is a, a large shadowy room. You go through that into a completely dark domed space where little pinpricks of light fall through from, they're, they're in fact holes in the roof which is called the night court. You go through that into an area where suddenly there's a lot of light and it's a pillared space. And there are vertical pillars made of alabaster, this shining white material. And the ceiling is made of alabaster. So it's, it's all the light is very, very light, but very undazzly, very cool. Thousands of pillars, like a forest of pillars. You go through the pillars and you come to a silver screen, and the silver screen is pierced with thousands of little holes. Through the silver screen, there is a garden. In the garden is God. The God that made the world lives at the heart of this fortress monastery, and the Nirmana are defending 
the God that made the world, who is called the all and only, the always and everywhere, the quiet watcher, the loving mother, the wise father, the wounded warrior, the lost child, many names, but it's God. And there is God at the heart of this world. Just a thing on names there, Bill. You, you, um, you, all your names are fascinating, because if you start to look hard at the names in your books, you always get glimpses of other things in them. No man. Where did where 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 this one come from? Yes, the, the, the Nomana. The, this is a trilogy. The first book is called Seeker, the second book is called Django, and the third book is called No Man. Right. So I don't want to say any more okay. than that. Okay? okay, fine. There's a lot. This, this, God, this God is not what you think. There's a big, big surprise on its way. There are lots of, I there are lots of surprises. There are lots of big yes, surprises yes. on its way. Just sticking with the monks for one more But minute. you've got to wait till 2007 to get to the... That's the trouble with <laughs> trilogies. I was talking to someone earlier on who said that they actually, with, with his last trilogy, they waited until the last book came out before buying any of them so that they could read them all at once, but his publishers wouldn't like to hear me. Well, I, I, haven't, so. I haven't written the last one yet. I'm, I'm on page 100... This morning, yesterday, I was on page 122 of book three, and it'll end up at about 350, probably. So I'm not there yet, but I know what happens. <laughs> There's a lot in in this book. Um, there's quite a lot of um, monkery and not a lot of warriorry, really, yes. is there? Yes. And the warriorry, when it happens, is surprisingly shocking. Actually, it's very is it? it's, well. It's quite brutal. It's quite violent. Oh, okay. Um, it's, 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 <laughs> is it too brutal? No, not no. I didn't think so at all. But I I, I was surprised by it because okay. I'd, you'd lulled me into thinking that these were these were peaceful. Well, they're peaceful, peaceful but, you know, when they need to kick, they can kick. And they kick very hard. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> By the way, not kick like in martial arts. This isn't another one of these rip-off kung fu things, you know, where they, you know, these, 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 where they, like this. And it's all very well, that, but it, what it ends up with all the kids in the classrooms all going around and kicking each other. My people do something very, very interesting. In fact, in the first chapter of book two, the first chapter is called The Secret Skill, and that explains their powers, because I am absolutely committed to giving information. I mean, it's a fantasy world, but I want you to understand how these people do what they do. It's, it's, it's very worked out. It isn't magic. It's something much more interesting, I hope. Maybe you won't believe it, but that's what I hope. There's a lot of, there are a lot of very com com complex, I don't want to say complicated because they're not complicated, but they are complex things in, 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 this, in, in the way that you build up these, the, this world and the people who live it. But on one level, the stories are very simple. Yeah. There are goodies and the baddies. Yeah. So we've talked about the goodies. Who are the baddies? Well, of course, with a trilogy, the great problem is you've got to have an ending for each book. Now, um, I, I, I haven't read all the Harry Potter books. My children have, and they tell me that book five was unsatisfying because it didn't really have an ending. And this is a problem if you're writing lots of different books heading towards a big ending. You've got to have sub-endings. And I needed a great sub-ending for book one. So I decided there had to be a group of baddies and they had to be a tremendous threat and there had to be danger for my heroes, which they resolve at the end. So who's the baddies to be? I mean, this, this is the fun I have writing these things. I think, what sort of baddies am I going to have? And um, I, I, I'm very keen on baddies, you know, and, and I'm very keen on the baddies not being obviously bad. And, and I, if any of you have ever heard me speak about this before, you'll know the example I always give is Lord of the Rings, the films I'm talking about now. You go to Lord of the Rings and you look at the orcs and you say to yourself, now I wonder if these are the baddies or not. 
Well, guess what? They're bad. And how do you know they're bad? They're hideously ugly. You know, they've got, they got these, they're unbelievably ugly. You know, there's serious need of orthodontic treatment and a bit of <laughs> complexion work. I mean, why they have to be so unbelievably ugly, I don't know. Because in my experience, unbelievably ugly people are not, not automatically bad. And tremendously beautiful people are not automatically good. And if any of you have read my other books, you'll know that some of the worst people in the Winsinger are the most gorgeous. So I'm quite keen on, on making baddies be interesting. In, in this book, what I did was I've set up a, because this book is, it's a lot about faith and belief and people who believe things. And my heroes have got God. So obviously they're good, their God is good, that's fine. Or so you think for a book or two. There are some people who've got an alternative God and they worship the sun. And I wrote this at the time the Aztec exhibition came to London. And I was fascinated by the Aztecs. And uh, as you probably know, the Aztecs went in for human sacrifice in a very, very nasty way, far too nasty. for. I mean, they cut people's hearts out while they were alive. Well, you know, I don't do things like that. That's nasty. But I thought human sacrifice, very interesting. What if we have a society in which the entire power of the elite rests on the fact that they control the, the daily survival of the community. How? They tell everybody that the sun will not rise in the morning unless a sacrifice is done every evening. And it's an interesting thing. If you tell people the sun won't rise unless we sacrifice somebody each night, are you going to risk finding out whether they're wrong? You're probably going to say, well, they're probably wrong, but let's not risk it. Let's keep sacrificing. And that's how the Aztecs worked. In my story, I thought, what kind of sacrifice can I have? I didn't want to have them having their hearts cut out. So what I have is, every night, they have to find somebody to push off a high rock. And this high rock is at the top of a temple. And there's a huge lake at the bottom of the rock. And every night, as the sun sets over the lake, as it touches the lake surface, well, no, more than touches, they push a sacrificial victim off this very high rock, 500 feet up, and they so time it that he hits the rocks as the sun disappears. And the entire town comes out to watch every night. And it's a social occasion. And you chat up your friends and you eat toffee apples and so on. And then wallop, down goes the tribute. And they all stand around saying, well, that was a good one. And no, it didn't scream enough. And I like the fat ones. They bounce and things like this. <laughs> but actually, they're killing people night after night in order to keep the thing going. Now, I hope. Did you regard that as too brutal? No, no, no. It's OK, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Originally, I had the idea that they'd be lowered by their legs into oil head first. But then I thought, ooh, that's a bit frightening. You know? So I thought just having them drop and smash. No, it's very good. It's very good. Is OK. So guess what jeopardy our hero gets into? I mean, you can sort of imagine, can't you? Um, so, that's, so they are sun worshippers, these people. And they're controlled by priests, despite being brought up by monks. I've slightly got it in for priests. Because I think what priests do is they say, we've got the wisdom, and you can't get it without us. And that's how priests control societies. And this is how my particular empire, it's called the Empire of Radiance. And the Empire of Radiance is controlled by priests, and the priests have to find sacrificial victims, enormous numbers of them, 365 a year they have to find. 
And of course, nobody wants to be sacrificed. So they have teams of people called tribute traders who wander the roads, snatching travelers to take them and to become victims, which, well, causes problems for my heroes. You're very interested, Bill, I, I sense, in, in, in how people exercise control over other people, because it was a theme in the, in the wind on fire, too, mm. with the mastery, wasn't it? I mean, these are sort of almost totalitarian yes. regimes, yes. aren't they? Yes. I mean, is that, is that more monkery? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I, I think we have a tremendous problem, the tension between, you know, to get a bit grand about it, individual freedom and stable society. Um, we have the problem right now where how much of our freedom are we prepared to give away in order not to be blown up by terrorists? And it's a real problem. And I am very, very interested in, in where you pitch that line, how much stability we want and at what cost. Um, and throughout the Noble Warriors, what happens is uh, the society becomes completely destabilized. It, it turns into chaos. After the end of book one, mm. because the Empire of Radiance gets defeated, in a way that's a good thing. But just like the collapse of Aramanth in uh, the first book of the Wind on Fire, if you collapse a society, who's going to organize things? What are you going to do? You actually give your society over like Russia. After communism failed in Russia, you've got a country run by gangsters, still is run by gangsters. So. I'm very interested in the idea that you have people who fight against oppressive regimes, but are they then willing, when they win, are they then willing to become the policemen, to become the rulers, to become the people who run that society? Because that's very hard work, and it makes you hated. And that's a major theme of this series, of The Noble Warriors. Although we haven't got to that point yet in the but first But what I should the say, book. The Noble Warriors have a, a very important uh, belief which the noble warriors have powers. They've got powers, sort of a bit like Superman, except much more limited. But the noble warriors are committed by their rule never to hold power. This is very important. They're rather like, uh, they, they, can, they can solve individual problems, but their rule requires them never to hold power in the land. And that's because once you start holding power, you become corrupted. However, if you're the person with the power, and if your country is disintegrating, shouldn't you take power? Shouldn't you do something about it? And that becomes one of the key threads. Once you've got power, how should you use it? And there's a very interesting moment at the very end when a quite minor character suddenly steps into a, a very important, potentially very important role right at the end of the book, isn't there? Um, which I suspect is setting us up for something of this kind in the second book. But. Um, in this book, anyway, um, the control takes place in the, in the city of Radiance. Yes. In Anacrea, which is the island where the Nom place is yes. and the Noma, the Nomana live, people appear to live of their own free will. Yes. Yes. So um, the main characters, the three main characters, who perhaps we could talk about them now, yes. because they also they all have they all have destinies to fulfil, yes. don't they? Um, so we're immediately into that debate about free will and destiny. Do what they do in, does what they do in the book. Is, has, are they being pushed? Is it predetermined? Has someone decided what their lives should be? Or are they inventing their own lives as they go along? 
Yes, I mean, I, I, I started off, there are three main characters. Um, there's Seeker, who's, this is his name. The, the group, the, the area he comes from names people with those sorts of names. If you've ever read any history, you'll know that there was a period in English history when the Puritans were, were um, calling their children names like Valiant for God and, and Shield of the Lord and, and th names like that. This in English history. Um, so I've borrowed that. And the people who grow up on, on Anacrea, the, the island where the nom is, name their children according to the virtues they want their children to have. So Seeker is called Seeker After Truth. That's his full name. And it's a name he bitterly resents. He doesn't like it at all. And his father has designated that he'll be a teacher and that that's the, the kind of truth that he'll be seeking after. He doesn't want to be that. His brother is called Blaze of Justice, and he wants to be like Blaze of Justice. He wants to be a warrior. And his father says, no, Blaze is the warrior. You're the teacher. And Seeker really, really resents this. And of course, as you can imagine, he does end up being a warrior. But as you can probably also imagine, he is also a seeker after truth. And he discovers much, much later that the name is, is truer than, than, than he might know. So he's somebody who starts off by being the clever boy in the school. His father's the headmaster. And he's the one who it really upsets him that he's the clever boy in the school. His father thinks it's natural that he should always come top. Seeker hates it. It means he doesn't have enough friends. It means he's considered a teacher's pet. And inside himself, he wants to rebel. And right at the beginning of the book is the moment at which he's coming up to the age, which is 16, when you're allowed to apply to join the warrior monks, the Namana. And his father says, you can't do that. You're going to be a teacher. So he deliberately blows an examination in order to persuade his father that he shouldn't be uh, a teacher and should be allowed to go and become a warrior, uh, which doesn't work out and, and this precipitates all sorts of, of crises. But that's him. He's a clever boy feeling he's a, a, a square peg in a round hole and longing to become one of the Nomana, longing to become a noble warrior, having everybody tell him, you're not up to it. That's not you. Which, of course, makes us feel, I hope, the reader, you know, go, Seeker, you show him. Which, by the end of the book, he does. He has to do more than anybody else to prove that he should be accepted. So that's Seeker. Then there's a girl called Morning Star, who's also 16. Morning Star is the son of a, um, a shepherd who doubles up by copying books. Daughter of a shepherd. Daughter of a shepherd. Very, quite right. And uh, so he's both a book writer, because this is a pre-printing world, and Morning Star has a mother who has joined way back when she was age three, left them and joined the Noble Warriors. So she wants to be like her mother. And Morning Star has a very interesting, she's a rather ordinary looking girl, rather quiet. But inside herself, she doesn't feel that way at all. She feels very nervy. And she has got a, a gift, which is that when she looks at people, she sees an aura around them of color. Nobody knows she can do this, and that color tells her what that person is feeling. It doesn't tell her anything else, but she can tell somebody's emotions by the color around them. And this causes her, in some ways, a lot of problems, because she knows a lot about people that, that they don't. She knows when somebody's angry with her but pretending not to be. She knows when somebody's cheating her, all these things, just by their colors. 
So she's got a rather heightened level of sensitivity, um, which makes her feel she's special. And she, too, wants to be a noble warrior and wants to give her life to the god. And then the third character is a bandit. And he's a 17-year-old he's bandit. And all he wants is to get rich. And he's a very beautiful youth with long golden hair and very colorful clothes and very tanned. And he has a, a sailing ship with which he raids people. And he's completely ruthless, completely amoral, completely egotistical. He has silver bracelets all up his arm, which rattle all the time. And his great cry that he first heaves into view, he says, hey ya, do you love me? And they all love him because he's so gorgeous and so charismatic. He's Johnny Depp, really. Isn't he's he? Johnny Depp, yes. Johnny Depp with the long gold wig. And he has no intention of being a noble warrior until he meets the noble warriors. And that, the first time he meets a noble warrior, he comes, he's, he's a real killer, this guy. The first time he meets a noble warrior, he is astounded by the power they have and by the effect on him. And so he says, if they're that strong, I want to be one of them. So you have three characters, different motives, wanting to be noble warriors. And that's what begins the story. And at that stage, as we were saying earlier on, they believe unquestioningly, don't they, that being a noble warrior is the ultimate thing that they can be. And I want the reader to believe that as yes. well for the duration yes. of this book. Oh, it feels like yes, it. Yes. It feels like it. Be assured. <laughs> Good. Um, just a couple of things that you said there that, rem that, that, that remind me of questions I wanted to ask you. Um, the opening scene when Seeker is being tested by his father, there's, I have a feeling that the wind on fire begins with an exam, yes, it does. doesn't it? Yes, it so does. So what's with the exam story, Bill? Well, I hate exams. Um, <laughs> I, I think exams are a monstrous, monstrous falsification of, of people's worth. I mean, I know that perhaps they're necessary. Um, I don't know. But I, I just think the whole system sucks. This way in which everybody is expected to be measurable in completely different subjects, all at the same age. It's just nonsense. People develop at different stages. Uh, sometimes they have bad teachers. Sometimes they have blocks about something. Um, it, it's simply no way to measure anybody. Also, putting people into exams puts them under utterly artificial pressure. There's almost no experience in life like an exam. You, you don't afterwards, nobody ever afterwards says, the most important determinant of your pay will be you sitting for two hours in total silence trying to do something that you're very frightened about. I mean, it's just not like that. It's, I think it's madness. And that was what triggered my whole Winsinger story. So it's always been in the back of my mind. So when I was beginning this, I thought, I'll just have a little kind of nod to that and, and show that Seeker is a bright boy who, I mean, what he does right at the beginning is he deliberately messes up a test and uh, thinks by doing so, it's a cry for help, really. It's his way of saying to his father, the teacher, don't do this to me. But his father, of course, simply says, this was a moment aberration, moment's aberration. We will not mention it again. I know you're still top of the class. I will leave you top of the class. And he realizes he's never going to get his father to understand that he's not the person his father thinks he is. So he has to take more radical action, which he does. The monks, of course, have a different way of assessing people, don't they? Yes. I mean, they intuit. Yes, yes. The, 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 the noble warriors are... Um, when I started working them out, I said, I'm going to make some heroes, but I want them to be 
people who are heroes to me. Think of all of the superhero stuff that we get nowadays. There's so much of it. But what are the qualities in these heroes? They're, they're pretty limited, frankly. I mean, they, okay, they're on the side of good. But on the whole, they've got some superpower, and they whack people, and, and that's about it, really. And I thought, no, I want to create a group of people that I genuinely admire. And that means they're people who've paid a considerable price for their powers, and they're people who are committed to something that I also value. And there are things that I value very much in our society, actually. I mean, I, I think people who choose to serve our society as a whole, often for not very much financial reward, should be admired. Um, and increasingly, people only admire celebrity and money. And I find this very depressing and not worthy of admiration. So I thought, I'll create some people who have said, we will give our entire lives to serving the world we live in and basically putting right wrongs, and, and, uh, uh, but at no personal reward at all. In fact, they, they, they have a very austere life. They live a very simple life. Um, so having had that idea, I thought, but I, I've got to make them cool, because otherwise nobody's going to enjoy reading about this. So I gave them then all sorts of qualities. And then I thought, how do they get these? What's their training like? And I've, I've worked the whole thing out. So by the time you, my, I, I don't want to tell you too much about book one, because if you read it, <coughs> you'll enjoy not knowing too much. But in the course of the trilogy, you will learn how these people get their powers, and uh, what the training is, and how it works. Um, and it's, it's fairly well worked out. It's not, it's not just get a bit of kryptonite, or be born on the right planet, mm -hmm. or something mm -hmm. like that. However, um, Morning Star, just to, to, to pick up yes. on that point, she does have this faculty. And yes. she sees auras. And indeed, I mean, there are people today who claim to be able to read auras. Yes. I mean, do you, do you think, uh, externally from the book, that, yes. that we have these, um, that we have faculties that are forgotten or undeveloped, that we have yes. antennae that we could? Yes, I do. Yes. I, I, I do. I don't, I don't think it in the way that, the slightly more simple-minded way. What I do very much believe, and it's built into the powers of my noble warriors, I do believe that all of us have a large amount of untapped power. You, you hear these silly little stories of, of you know, a mother whose child is squashed by a truck and who picks the truck up to save the child. And these things do happen. You can call upon enormous reserves of energy that usually we do not use. And we don't use them because we are so conflicted within ourselves. Most of our energy goes on fighting inside ourselves, usually fighting our anxieties or fears. And because we're so screwed up inside all the time, all that energy is, is pulling against itself. But my theory is, I don't know if this is really true, but I sort of feel it's true, that if you could deal with that and actually focus all the power that you've got, you know, I'm talking about nervous energy, I'm not talking about God, you could do extraordinary things. And I, I, a long time ago, I, I used to be a documentary filmmaker, and I made a documentary about a thing called The Inner Game, which impressed me a lot. And this guy's theory, who created the theory of The Inner Game, he, he taught tennis. And he did it to me. I'm, I can't play tennis. And he said, uh, the reason you are bad at tennis is because as you start to serve, a little voice in your head says, 
here I go, missing again. And you miss. And so all the time, you're giving all your muscles instructions. And the instructions are no good, because you can't, your brain can't move that fast. So his technique, he would say, right, I'm going to ask you to throw the ball up in the air and tell me how many feet up it goes. I want you to hit it, but don't care about what your racket's doing. Just throw it up. And when it's starting its descent, call out two feet, three feet, however high it is, and hit it. It doesn't matter whether you hit it or not. That's what I want you to tell me about. So I did this. After that, I found I was hitting it every time. She said, OK, now you're going to hit it over the net. I don't care where it lands, but I want you to tell me how far over the net it lands. Just watch where it lands. Don't worry about getting it in the right bit of the court. So I did this for her. After a bit, it was landing in exactly the place I wanted it. He said, all I have done is shut you up. That's all I've done. I've shut up all that rubbish going on in your head, saying, oh, I'm going to mess up. Oh, no, I've done it wrong. And that impressed me a lot. And I watched him take complete beginners and turn them into reasonable tennis players in about three hours by this technique. And ever since then, I've, I've thought to myself, we can do so much more than we know. And that stuff fascinates me. And what I've done with the Noble Warriors is I've taken that kind of attitude, but I've you know, it's a fantasy story. I'm allowed to, to, to make some stuff up, you know. I'm not telling you that you could go and be a noble warrior by the instructions here, because you couldn't. But it's that sort of basis. And it's in that sense, that's what I mean when I say it's not magic. Magic, you've got a wand and you go uber, uber, <coughs> uber, and it happens. That's magic. This, there's a, you train for it. It's all connected with what you do to yourself. I find that far more exciting. I think reading the book, I, I feel, and I felt it with the previous trilogy, that you're, you're a very moral person and you're very interested in what is right and wrong and most interesting of all, what lies in that grey area in between. But are you a religious person? I think I am a religious person, actually. I'm not a believer, if, if that makes sense. I no longer believe what I was brought up to believe. I no longer believe that when I die, I will go somewhere else. I don't know what will happen when I die, but I suspect nothing. I certainly no longer believe in the Christian version of, of why we're here and how we're here. I, I've, I, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but, but I have moved completely away from that. I now think, looking back, that I believed all of that because I needed to believe something. So I'm now in a kind of open territory. And the fact that I call this book Seeker is not coincidental. Um, I think what I write is seeker fiction. It's not science fiction. It's not fantasy fiction. It's seeker fiction. Everything I write is people trying to make sense of the world they live in. And I'm in progress myself, too. I don't know where I'll end up. My mother is absolutely convinced I'll end up in the bosom of the church as I approach death. I, <laughs> I don't think I will. I think I'm too far gone. But I'm sure as hell interested, very, very interested, and very, very open. And it's amazingly exciting for me to use stories to explore this, which is what I'm doing. I'm kind of trying out ideas. The god that you have in this book, the, the god with many names, who is the wise father and the loving mother and the wounded warrior and the lost child, that's a family. And, and I think... This is my theory. Can I have a theory about your book? I'd be delighted. Yes. Um, that, that really your God is family love. Because well, it's very, very powerful in, in the Wind yes. on Fire trilogy. And it's very powerful here too. You sense that these are families 
They're very close families, the families you describe, and they all truly love one another. Mm -hmm. I, it's a funny thing that when I started writing The Windsinger, I thought I was writing about exams. Afterwards, people said to me, do you realize how unusual it is to have central characters in children's fiction who have parents that they actually like? And I thought about it, and I thought, my God, it's true. Every damn thing you read, you know, the parents are dead, and the children have horrible uncles looking after them, or whatever, and they're all orphans, and, and all the grown-ups are beastly to them, apart from, you know, the wizard. And, and uh, I hadn't thought about that at all. I instinctively write what I feel, and I have a very loving family, and it matters to me more than anything, and my relationship with my wife and my children is more important to me than, than everything else, and gives me enormous strength. And, and, and happiness. And without me even realizing it, I'd written that into, in, into the, the books. Also, I have to say, I mean, my, my parental family, my, my mother and father split up. And I think that the pain of that is part of my reaching out for, for the family that works. And I didn't know I was doing it. I swear to you, I did not know that that was happening. But you're right, it is very unusual. And I've, yeah. I found it very striking in everything that you write. Um, we've talked a bit about, the, about uh, as much as we want to about the plot without giving too many exciting things away. But there's a, there, are un, there's a, there, are, there are two big underlying sort of um, legends that are going on beneath the story, which we know are going to be explained further in the books that, well, you have written, but we haven't yet seen. Um, I mean, w one is the assassin, yes, and and um, the other is is the well. In fact, the assassin I suspect is also part of the other legend because both sides have legends, don't they, that have yet to come to fruition. That's right. I mean, the the assassin in my, my noble warriors who have God in their um, fortress monastery. There's a, a, a like a prophecy really that that says one day the assassin will come and will kill the god. And that is why the noble warriors have to be permanently ready for, to, to protect the, the all and only, the lost child, the wounded warrior, the loving mother, from the assassin. So the question is, who is the assassin? How will the assassin come? What will happen then? Now, you don't get the answer to that in book one. In fact, you don't get the answer to that until the end of book three. And by then, many things have, have changed. But the assassin is on the way. And that is fairly standard storytelling technique. You know, if, if you're going to create a story, something's got to drive the thing. And I, my stories are driven at about three levels. There's a driver that drives this particular one, uh, which is will our three heroes win the right to become noble warriors, and how, and in their journey towards that, will they overcome the dangers? And that is concluded in this book. There's a proper ending. There's a big, big ending to the book. It's not a swindle, I promise you. But the, the other question of who is the god and what or who is the assassin, those are running at a higher level. And in book two, one of those comes to an end, and the other one doesn't come to an end until book, book three. And I have to do that. It's, it's quite tricky writing a trilogy. You, you have to maintain plot yes. momentum. Yes. Yes. 
within the book and within the whole thing. But you do have a very strong sense in this book that there are much greater powers than yes. you're telling us much yes. about yes. at play. Yes. Um, well, there's a reference <coughs> in this book to some old people. Yes, at the very at, at the beginning, at the early on. Yes. yes. You, you discover so who they are. They're quite sinister. They're very sinister. They're very sinister. Yes, they're very sinister. They have a very sinister need, don't they? They do. Yes. yes. They're they're pursuing eternal youth. Yes. They're very old people pursuing eternal youth. Mm. You see, that's another. I've got this kind of bug in my head about. I, I don't know where this all comes from. I really am bothered by the youth, beauty, culture, the cosmetic surgery thing. The way. I mean, I've got teenage daughters. The way everybody is having to be turned into a teenager all the time. And uh, this seems to me to be profoundly destructive. And the worst people in my new trilogy are people whose, whose drive is eternal youth. They're looking for a way to win eternal youth. And these people are bad, bad, bad. And they have um, in this book, and I think we can probably say a little bit about this without giving the game away too much, that their weapon is a very chilling modern weapon, isn't it? The, the idea of uh, the, do, do you mean the, the suicide bomber, really, is what I, we're talking I don't about. want to tell about that. I really right. don't, because I think, I, I, I think it's fun to come upon it as yes. a bit of a surprise. The, the, the people of Radiance are determined to destroy the Nom, mm. this fortress monastery. And they come up with a way to destroy it, because the, the, the noble warriors have too much power. They can't beat them on their own terms. So they've got to find a way to destroy this monastery. And that's one of the major plot elements of it. And they come up with, uh, I think, it's a brilliant. Idea. It's a modern it, idea, though, isn't it? But, but, but the actual way it works, oh, yes. don't you think it's clever? Oh, yes, very clever. Yes, we, don't, we certainly shouldn't, <laughs> say, we shouldn't say anything about that at all. They come up it, with a way of... It's of, very nasty, too. Yes, yes. <laughs> of infiltrating yes, a, yes. A total destruction into this completely defended uh, fortress. And, uh, uh, but I don't want to tell yeah. you what it is, because there's we a lot of fun go, in that. We won't go there. Um, the monks are, are, are they're peace lovers, essentially, but they can fight when they need to. Yes. Would you fight if you had to? I'm too cowardly. That's the problem. I mean, I have occasionally been in situations where I probably should have shown physical aggression, and I can't do it. And I can't do it because I've got a very vivid imagination, and my mind works very fast. I remember once being confronted by a guy in a car, and I had parked my car, and I just tapped, just tapped his car. And he jumped out, and he so clearly wanted to smash me for touching his car. And he was completely in the wrong, and I should have, and I had my children with me, and I should have, you know, stood up to him and faced him down. But all I could imagine was the moment when his fist crushed the soft tissue of my nose, and the blood all dribbled down my face, and my teeth came loose. And I could see all this in a sort of flash of insight. So I just avoided looking at him and said, I'm terribly sorry, and just calmed it all down and walked away. And I would have loved to have been a hero to my kids, but I'm too gutless. So you're not a candidate for monkdom? I'm not a candidate no, for that no, sort of not monkdom. That, not that kind. No, no, not unless they give me a lot of armor and a, and a weapon that nobody else can beat. There's, there's just one more thing I want to ask you about, um, about specifically about the book, uh, which is also true of the other trilogy, which is this business of the names, because your names are really wonderful. You're very playful with, in creating your names. 
And there's a fantastic, in fact, there's slightly less of it in this book than there was there in is The Women less, on Fire. Yes, yes. But you do do it nevertheless. And there's, there's a particularly ingratiating and nasty court here. You're very good on obsequious courtiers, and you're very good on silly rulers, too, yes, aren't you? Yes. You like silly rulers. Yes, I do. But this chap is called Soren Similin. Oh, yes, Soren Similin, yes, yes. Yes, yes. He's, so he, where did, what, what is that? I mean, it's a very onomatopoeic sort of, it, has, it makes a sound, doesn't it? Yes, it's I changed his name many times, actually. Um, I, 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 in a way, I'm still not entirely satisfied with that name, but I mean, there it is, I've done it now. Um, I was looking for, he's a weasel, and he he's, a, weasel. He, he's, a ba he's a bad sort. Um, and I wanted him to be somebody who you felt that about. I mean, I do think, you see, Similin, feels to me a little bit slithery and a little bit like he would cheat me. I don't know why, but it feels that way. I mean, I, I really do feel this about names. When I read the first Harry Potter, I was astonished to find that a good, honorable chum was called Weasley. I mean, Weasley isn't, to my mind, I mean, now, of course, it's associated with his character, which is fine, but I wouldn't call a nice guy Weasley. Um, but I'm very, very hot on these, yes, the, yes. these names. And I, I enjoy either finding sounds that work, or like I have a character called Cheerful Giver, who's not a cheerful giver at all, who's a complete <coughs> selfish. A euphemism bastard. in the true yes. sense of the word, yes. and that it means the opposite. Yes, of, yes. 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 I was very amazed the other day to discover that Pol Pot, who was the hideous Cambodian dictator who, with the Khmer Rouge, murdered four million people, um, his birth name was Salof Sar. And he could absolutely be a character in one yes, of your books. Yes, Saloth Sar. That's right. Well, I do pick up names tremendously yes. from all over. I have a huge sheet of paper in my office, and every time I come across a funny word, I put it down. Mm. And then as I'm writing and I'm looking for names, I run my eyes down, and one lot of them is names from the Sussex dialect. Not names, words from the Sussex dialect. You know, funny words like irk and, mm. and nub and things like that. And, and other ones are abstract nouns that I think might be useful, like patience or grace or craze or something like that. And, and others are just names I come across. And I fill sheets of paper with these names because, you know, as you write, you're moving fast. And I think, oh, Christ, you know, he's got to have a sidekick. What's he going to be called? We'll call him Pico and uh, pull it off my list. And then I go back and change them. And, and I'm constantly working the names. But it's very colourful, and it, and it sort of lends a, a, a layer of fun mm. to the book if you get into looking the at the names. And the names all connect. Uh, yes. Whatever tribe you're in yes. or group you're in, yes. all the names They're, connect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask you one more question, and then we're going yeah. to invite everybody else, because I'm sure you've got lots of questions for him. Just very briefly, you're the screenwriter's craft, because before you started writing these fabulous books, you were... Um, for quite a long time, a writer. You still are a screenwriter. And f if anybody here in the audience doesn't know, Bill wrote the screenplay for Gladiator. Well, I was, I was one of the writers. Was, you were one I, of There were three writers. I was the last writer. Right. Yep. So you had the final stab at it. Absolutely. Or did you work together? No, no, no. no, no, no. You, were, you were the third person. Yeah, it was like serial to. marriage. You know, They divorced yes. the old wives, and then they brought me on. Uh, but you also wrote the screenplay and the play of Shadowlands, yes. which was yes. about C.S. Lewis, who wrote, who wrote Narnia and Wardrobe. Yes. Um, these books are incredibly visual. I mean, you see everything, and it's, you do it with very deft pen strokes. You don't describe very much. Is this part of the sort of filmmaker's craft, to, to write that way? I, I suppose it might be, but when people say this to me, I say, you know, look at Dickens, highly visual writer, long before the age of film. It's 
it's how I like to work. I mean, I, I, I like to create scenes. But maybe it is because I've been a screenwriter. I, 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 I'll never know. I feel there's a discipline there. Yeah, you're probably you're right. You're not florid. You don't, go, you don't go mad when you describe no. something. No, no, no. And I guess no. as a screenwriter, you, you have to be... Well, as a screenwriter, time is money. and also they don't want you to write down too much no. because you know you write down you could just write down a sailing ship and then an entire art department will build a sailing ship. Yes. They don't don't need me telling them how to yes. do that. Yes. Now, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, please let's have some some questions. Hands up, and we've got a microphone that's going to go first to the person in the blue t-shirt in the middle row there. Um. What inspired you to write The Wind Singer and, um, oh, I've forgotten what it is. Have you ever um, started a book and not finished it? Um, the, the Wind Singer, I started writing as a kind of way to get away from writing films. When you write films, you have other people control you and tell you what to write all the time. And I wanted something just for me. So that's why I decided to write that. I didn't know if anybody would want it. And have I ever started writing something and then stopped? Yes, I have. Um, though usually, in recent years, I don't start until I've got a story sorted. And uh, people sometimes say to me, I have a website, and they come onto the website and say, I'm always writing things, but I can never get past the first few pages. And my answer is, try, you don't have to do this, but try not writing, but making a plan. So make a little plan of your story. It doesn't have to be a big plan, but in whatever else it's got, get an ending. Make a plan with an ending. Then start writing. And if you do it that way around, usually you'll carry on because you know where you're going. And because I've learned that, I don't any longer start things and then give up. I tend not to start if I can't work out the ideas. Another one? Um, There's lots here. Lots here in the middle. I can probably hear you without a mic, actually. I mean, it, it just slows it up so much, having the mic trundle Um I was just wondering, it's interesting that you said that you were very religious when you were younger, and then you got older, and you sort of lost interest. And I wondered if, if this story, which obviously religion is a big theme, if it's just a great story, or is it kind of what you wanted religion to be with, warrior monks and a tangible god that you can say, the god is here, I must actively defend him? It's not what I wanted to be at all. Um, I didn't lose interest. I lost belief which is different. I retained the interest very, very strongly. This story isn't the religion I would want. And by the time, if you do read it, by the time you get to book two and book three, you'll know why. Um, but it is about people like me wanting to believe and exploring that belief in a story form, in a fantasy form. So if you like, it absolutely carries my feelings, but not my conclusions. These are not like, I do not believe the world is like this. I do not believe that God lives in a monastery and, and, and so on. Um, but I, I, I don't fully understand it myself, to be honest. Um, I'm very, very engaged by it. So something is obviously working for me in my religious needs. There's something in me that wants to say there's more in this world than I'm aware of. There's more than just eating and sleeping and making money and so on. There must be more. What is it? And the, in these books, I'm playing with that feeling. And because they're fantasy, I'm allowed to play. Whereas if somebody said to me, what do you really believe? It would all get really boring. Because I'd say, well, I don't really know. It's all very difficult. You know? But here I can have fun. 
I'll tell you what we'll do, just so that we can get some more questions in. We'll take some from the middle block, and then we'll move over there. So let's just have a few from... We'll start right in the front here, and then we can pass it back. Um, what's your favourite book at the moment? Favourite book of mine or favourite book in the world? Uh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Could I just say something about this, this what's your favourite question? It, it, I get it a lot, and, and I think all writers get it, get it a lot. And it's a fair question, but the truth is it can't be answered. And it can't be answered because it implies that there's one thing more than every other. In, in my own books, I really do love them all. Just like in my family, I love all my children, and I don't have a favorite. In the books that I've read, of all the books that I love most, I, I, I would be unable to tell you which I love the most. Um, because they've all been so important to me. I mean, there are some books I think are rubbish, but, but we don't need to, to go into that. Uh, so I tend, it's a bit like, what's your favorite color? You know, well, my favorite color for beetroot is purple. You know, my favorite color for tomatoes is red. My favorite color for night is black, and so on. Um, so I, I can't really answer. Okay. Next row up. In the Window and Fire trilogy, then there was quite a lot of magic, but you said you didn't really believe that magic was very good for, like, it wasn't, it was a bit boring. What I think you'll find is that most of the magic is in the first book, uh, in The Windsinger. Um, once you get past The Windsinger, what there is is a kind of a, a sense of uh, there's destiny and there's powers, there's the wind on fire itself. Is it working? He's, he's talking in. Go. Hello? Yeah, there's, the, there's all the stuff of the singer people, though. What, well, that's that true, that? but do, do, do you regard the singer people as magic? Because I don't. I regard the, You're right, you're right. I mean, it's, there's something funny going on. Um, what about the floating and stuff? Uh, well, yes, that's true, but, but the way they float, I mean, uh, uh, it's... Uh, this is about nervous energy again. Well, exactly. I mean, of course you're right. I, I, I don't disagree with you. This can be called magic. But it's not magic in the kind that you've got a book of spells and you do the spells. It's all part of their training and, what they, uh, and their philosophy as well. And the key thing in The Wind on Fire, there's a whole... It's almost a, uh, a theology going through it that says that life goes in cycles. The time of kindness moves into the time of action, which moves into the time of cruelty, which then needs to be purged by the wind on fire, and the time of <laughs> kindness comes back again. Now, that sort of stuff, it's not magic. It's, um, I don't know what it is. It's, perhaps it is, perhaps it's philosophical magic, maybe. But you're, you're right to correct me. I mean, there's certainly, certainly some magical things going on there. Okay, next row up in, in the middle there. How old were you when you made your first book? Eh? Well, um, it depends what you call a book. I, I, uh, I, I started writing when I was very little, but I wasn't. Um, uh, I didn't want to write very much, so I wrote picture books. And uh, I thought picture books I could, you know, get more into a book with less words. And uh, I, but I wasn't any good at drawing either, so I decided that my hero would be a worm, because of course you see a worm <laughs> is easy to draw. So I did the adventures of Willie the Worm, and I would write the, draw a picture of the worm, you know, doing things. And that, I suppose that was my first book. But my first proper written book, I wrote when I was about 16, and that was a James Bond-type book. I was very keen on the James Bond books. 
and I wrote a book called The World, the Flesh and the Devil, and I thought it was much better than James Bond. And I remember asking friends, you know, tell me about a really cool car for my hero to have, because I didn't know anything, and tell me about the name of a really cool gun. And I was putting all this stuff into this story, which um, unsurprisingly nobody was interested in. But that was probably my first. Okay, let's There's, You can move it along, actually. Yeah, why don't you move it along one? Oh, all right. Go on. There we go. Um, do you totally admire any other writers, and have you ripped them off? <laughs> <laughs> I totally admire many other writers, and I, I think almost without any doubt at all, I've ripped them all off. It's very hard not to. If you read a writer who you admire very much, you've, without even thinking you're doing it, you start to write like them. Uh, or you use stuff that they've done. In fact, I was absolutely horrified to discover that there's a bit in um, one of the Narnia books where eagles carry the children to freedom, which is a scene I have in The Windsinger, which I'd completely forgotten, but obviously had swiped. And uh, these things happen all the time. And the only protection I can think of is I try not to read the really good writers while I'm writing. I haven't read all of the Philip Pullman trilogy while I'm working because I'm terrified I'll steal all his stuff and copy all his ideas because he's a very good writer. So um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a real risk. But on the other hand, that's what feeds me. All the good books feed me as well. So I can't cut myself off too much. And there are a limited number of ideas too. There are some yeah. very good ideas yeah. that are there for all of us to have. Yes. Okay. Um, Pass it along. Do we have any questions over in this side? Um, no, not very many. So we'll just keep going. Would you back just give in it the to the, this, yes, this young this lady, lady here, here. Then, yes. then we must move it around a bit. Um, after you finish writing a book, do you um, know the plot inside out almost as if it's happened to you? Yes, I do. I do feel as if it's happened to me. I feel it as I'm writing. I, I am the characters as I'm writing. People often ask me, "What? Who are you?" base your characters on, and they're all based on me. And you sort of can't help that, even if it's a 16-year-old princess, it's still me. And it's the feelings that I are going through are, are, are me. I mean, in um, book two of, of, of this, Morning Star has a tremendous passion, a sort of crush, an infatuation. I've had a tremendous passion, many in my life, so I can feel that and I can write it, but, but she's a 17-year-old girl. Um, so it's, it's, I'm living through it and, and feeling it all the time. The, the great thing, though, for me is I've got a really bad memory. So after I've got to the end and moved on, and when the books are all finished, I find I forget it. So when people say to me, you know, why did you do such and such in the book? I have no idea. I have to go back and read it all again to discover. And I read it and I say, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what's going to happen next. And I've just forgotten it all. It's like, while I'm writing, I hold the whole world in my head, and there's simply no room for anything else. So, and of course, I'll go on to write something else. So I dump, you know, I'm like a hard disk. I just wipe it, and in comes the new book. And uh, so that sort of makes it all rather exciting for me. We can take one more short Ooh. question. Okay, um, gentleman in the red sweater there, oh. with a white stripe there, that's it. You're a gentleman, aren't you? <laughs> Sorry, she lost her chance. Oh. Um, in Fire Song, why did you make Kestrel the 
Blah, blah, blah. Best in everything. If there may be like people who haven't read to the end. Yes. What? Um, why did I make the ending be the way it was in Fire Song for Kestrel? Mm. Is that your question? Yeah. And if anybody hasn't read it, then I don't want them to know what happens to Kestrel. Kestrel and Bowman are the two main characters of The Wind on Fire, and there may be some people here who will be inspired to go and read it, and it'll be much more fun if you don't know what happens. Why did I let that happen to Kestrel, that interesting but unnamed fate? Um, I did feel from the very beginning that that was what was going to happen to her, that that was what all her special qualities were leading her towards. Um, now, a lot of people have said to me that I'm wrong about this and that they regret that I did what I did. So it's possible that I'm wrong, but um, she is still there at the end. I'm choosing my words carefully. She's still there at the end. She's not gone, okay? She's still there. So it's not perhaps what it may seem. And Bowman and Kestrel are twins. They have telepathic union. They can understand each other's thoughts. They are almost two halves of the same person. So I don't know if that makes it any better. But my feeling is that it's OK what <laughs> happens to Kestrel. But I must admit that a lot of people agree with you if you're saying that you didn't like it and feel I did that wrongly. Um, and maybe I did. I mean, remember, authors are not perfect. I could have screwed up. And if I did, I'm sorry. Just pass the mic to your neighbour, who's going to be very disappointed indeed if okay. you don't let her ask her question. All right. Let's um, keep it a quick one. If, he's going, if the god's going to be assassinated anyway, why protect him? We don't, we don't know. We know the assassin is coming. But of course, if they're there to protect him, they hope that they will prevent the assassin. There's no, the prophecy doesn't say that the god will die. The prophecy says that the coming of the assassin cannot be prevented. But what will happen when the assassin comes is another matter. So they are living in fear. They, it's the one thing they fear. But they're very, very vigilant. However, it's not what they think. Good moment to end it. <laughs> we all love a cliffhanger. <laughs> Um, it's been a wonderful hour. Uh, Bill, I can't thank you enough. It's a most thrilling book. Nobody's read it yet except me. Because it's not even it's, published it's yet. It's not even published it's yet. It's published this September 3rd. Have you read it? How come? I, I'm ready to put Oh, OK. <laughs> ah, it's not published till September 13th, but there are copies in there, the book. There are copies, and that's where we're going to go now, just around the corner, where Bill will be sitting at his station with his pen. It's a fabulous book. He's a wonderful talker and a great storyteller, and I'd like you to give him a very big round of applause. Thank you. Thank you.